Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to participate here in the program, you could always call me on the listener hotline. Leave a message there. That number 303-832-0217. And have all the contact links uh, if you want to contact me in any other way uh, in the description of the show. Speaking of the show, on the show today, we are talking about a strange traffic law. Uh, Whether or not it is legal to drive your car barefoot. (laughs) Look, I've done it. Uh, I find it uncomfortable because the pedal is so small on my giant size foot, 13 size. Uh, And and what is more dumb than riding a motorcycle barefoot, which I have done also. Um, But as I get older... I, I look back at, at my past activities, and I find that I did a lot of stupid things out there. And, uh, yeah, I was pretty stupid. Uh, and <laughs> when I did it, I, I was taking my chances, But that, like all of us, right? But, hey, look, I, I, I made it through there, and hopefully you will <laughs> as well. Doesn't age do that to you? Make you think that you were a real idiot <laughs> back when you were younger? Anyway, one I answered several years ago, it was uh, the question— is it really illegal to drive a black car on Sunday in Denver? Uh, that came from one of these uh, strange internet law sites, and so I debunked that whole thing. Anyway, there are so many questions that I have yet to be un- answered in, in this life. Like, uh, why can we put a rover on Mars and not metal in the microwave? There's also other driving questions that I have all the time. How about this one? Is it illegal to drive without shoes? This is a question that automotive writer Jason Unrau set out to answer in an article that he has on Bumper.com. And Jason not only writes for Bumper.com, but also for CBT Automotive Network and Autobody News. And he joins me now to talk all about this. Jason, thanks so much for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. We will get into that whole barefoot driving question in just a second. But first, how did you get into automotive journalism? You write for Bumper.com and some other auto, you know, other uh, auto news sources. So how long have you been writing about and interested in automotive stuff? Wow. Uh, I've been in automotive basically my whole life. My dad uh, worked on cars on his own at, at home, and uh, I was right in there with him. Um, and uh, the start of my career was actually working in car dealerships, uh, mostly as a service advisor. I spent about 15 years working uh, at the desk in the service department and uh, moved into writing uh, at the encouragement uh, of a friend of mine. Uh, and I've been doing that for a little over six years now. That, that's interesting that you have that background in auto dealerships. What was it like uh, when you were uh, working in the dealership and, and did you like it? Yeah, working in dealership is, is definitely a, a very interesting industry. Um, working in dealerships is, is very different from, from most retail. Uh, it's um, different now than it was when I first started. It was uh, very aggressive and uh, dog-eat-dog, and it's really changed now into a, a customer-centric industry. Yeah, it really seems like it has changed quite a bit because the internet has really changed how people buy cars. And when you go into a dealership, it, it's it's a it's a hassle to deal with the car salesman who who goes back and forth to the to the manager and that knows this is the best deal we can do for you. I mean, I think the internet really has changed that whole concept. Well, there's no question it's changed basically everything there is to do with car buying and even servicing. 
uh, with car buying, it's really you can buy a car online completely in a, in most places now. Uh, it takes away a lot of the pressure of dealing with a salesperson. Uh, although dealing with a salesperson today is nothing like dealing with one twenty years ago. It was uh, you know very stressful twenty years ago. Now it's it's more like having a conversation with with a salesperson who's just trying to find the right vehicle for you. And we're going to talk more about some of that stuff coming up in just a little bit because you have all kinds of articles uh, on Bumper.com all about uh, how to buy a car and and uh, what it's like to buy a car and, and some of the issues, especially with used cars, um, now that uh, used cars, uh, the market is going crazy. But let's get to that barefoot question. Did you have to call every Department of Motor Vehicles in every state in the United States to uh, to figure out the answer to that question? Uh, not really. Most states have some information online, but it does take quite some time to uh, get all of that information into one article. Uh, it was very interesting to, to go through that to find out that uh, there are no specific laws forbidding driving without shoes on. And so is there a theme to some states regionally, maybe? Like in the south, is it the same to the northeast and to the west? Or are there similar uh, laws in the different states there in, in regions, or are they pretty much all different across the country? Uh, I'm not sure if there's actually regional differences, per se. Um, what I would say is that the more conservative states seem to have laws that... Um, that will ticket a driver for unsafe practices if they're not wearing shoes. Say if they're uh, driving and get into an accident because their foot slips off the pedal, uh, they can be ticketed for, you know, uh, say unsafe driving practices or uh, a similar type of offense for that. You note that in this article on bumper.com. It's not illegal to drive barefoot in Alabama, but it could be cause for contributing to a crash even though there's one exception that Alabama requires motorcyclists to wear shoes. I <laughs> used to ride a motorcycle when I was in college <laughs> in Georgia, and uh, I used to sometimes ride around without shoes. It was, yeah, pretty stupid, but I did it anyway, and I, I can't <laughs> recall if it was uh, legal or legal in Georgia to drive around barefoot on a motorcycle. That's a great question. I, I didn't get into motorcycles um, with this information, I previously rode a motorcycle as well, and I can tell you I never would have been able to shift without uh, without shoes on, so I never tried it. It's interesting that you say in Georgia that it's uh, illegal to drive with headphones on in both of your ears at one time. You could have one ear open and one ear closed with some kind of headphones, but there's no law forbidding drivers from going barefoot in Georgia. Uh, but yeah, again, I don't know about the uh, the whole uh, barefoot on a motorcycle thing, even though it is kind of stupid. Uh, here in Colorado, what did you find? In Colorado, uh, there weren't any specific laws regarding uh, driving without uh, shoes whatsoever. Um, it's not actually mentioned in any of the laws at all. Yeah, and I find that it, around a lot of Colorado laws as I'm studying them there are like turning left at a light where do you wait back at the stop bar or the crosswalk or can you go halfway out there's no specific law for that there's best practices maybe in a handbook but there's really no specific law for that sort of thing is it is it illegal to uh drive barefoot in canada 
No, actually, it is not illegal to drive barefoot in Canada. Um, anytime between October and April, it would be unsafe to do so, just due to frostbite, but uh, <laughs> it is not illegal. Did you find any surprises by any state um, as you were looking up these laws? I wouldn't say surprises. I think if I had expected any of the states to have um, have laws surrounding uh, wearing shoes when driving, it would have been in the northern states uh, where the weather does get rather icy uh, or, or more dangerous uh, than in the south. But uh, even there, there wasn't anything super surprising. It was funny that in Delaware, it, you say that uh, you're flipping through the pages of the driver's manual and there are 52 references to feet, but none of them have anything to do with driving barefoot. They all have to do with distance from another vehicle or object, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that, that reference was just, uh, you know, more for, um, more for color in the article than anything, nothing specific about feet whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, and in, in Hawaii, you would think that, hey, it would probably be a Hawaii law that you should drive barefoot, um, and just the Hawaiian spirit, but that's not what, the, that's not what you found out. Or flip-flops. Flip-flops should be, uh, should be mandated as well. Right, um, and, but driving with flip-flops, and maybe you've experienced this or, or done stories about it, driving with flip-flops can be very dangerous because they can get caught under the brake pedal or under the, um, uh, the gas pedal and, and actually cause some problems. Yeah, I've, I've heard stories of that actually happening locally here. Uh, I'm, you know, in central Canada. Um, and there's been, you know, stories locally where, where that's happened. And there's been accidents as a result of wearing flip-flops when driving. Before we get into some of your other articles, and I'm speaking to Jason Unraw. He's an automotive writer for Bumper.com, as well as other automotive um, publications that you can read on the internet right now. You can actually follow him on Twitter at Jason Copywriter. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, this chip shortage for um, use for new cars, and it's really affecting the used car market yeah. as well. I mean, it's really becoming a big uh, problem for all kinds of car makers, and, and some are even shutting down for a short time. Yeah, car makers are definitely uh, feeling the pinch right now uh, to manufacture uh, because there's so much demand for cars, but uh, the volume just isn't there for microchips uh, like they need to produce. And that's filtering through new cars down into used cars, and, and we're seeing astronomical prices uh, being asked and paid for uh, nationwide. I was just talking to a trucking company in the last episode about a part shortage and how that is affecting many trucks on the road. It seems like it's a almost a domino effect where it's the chip shortage, it's uh, part shortages, and that is not only putting fewer new cars out there in the showrooms. Uh, in one instance, I, I heard of a dealer actually selling a car to somebody and then wanting to almost immediately buy it back from them at a higher value than what they paid for it, just so they could get it as a used car and sell it there on their lot. That uh, story isn't too unusual considering the, the climate today. The, the shortage has affected things so, so much um, that even repairing cars or reconditioning cars to get them on the lot is a uh, big struggle for car dealerships right now. Uh, what we're finding is that 
it can be a weight for computerized components of, of any kind, really, whether it's, you know, radios or ECUs or you know, anything that's going to have a microchip in it. It can be a wait of two weeks, three weeks, even longer just to get a replacement part for a, for a car so that the dealership can put it on their used car lot. Yeah, it's uh, and then when I heard the story about how some of the dealers or the were going to be accepting or, or in some cases they were going to actually reject the offer from the manufacturers to start sending cars to them and say, hey, just hold them on your lot until we can then ship you a chip and then you can have your mechanics there at your dealership put this thing in there and then you can sell it. Um, <laughs> that, that that's unheard of. Yeah, it's amazing. There's been truck manufacturers that are that are doing that and they're telling our customers it's okay to buy it. And then once the parts are all uh, ready to be delivered, they'll bring them back in and, and install those components, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, I've heard that's the case. I believe for, for Chevy models um, where the uh, auto start stop feature uh, isn't installed from the factory. And uh, I, I believe they're going to put that feature back in afterwards when the chips are available. Right now on Bumper.com, you have a ton of great articles, and I wanted to talk about a few of these as several deal with used cars, as we've been talking about, because they're obviously hot properties right now. Um, But one of the articles goes through a used car checklist. It's really important since used cars are worth so much more now than they were a few years ago. What are some of those most important things we should check on a used car? Well, from uh, Bumper's perspective, which I think is uh, very customer-centric, one of the main things that you want to take a look for is that it has a clear title. Uh, You'll find a lot of cars today uh, are being sold um, that may not have a clear title. They might have a branded title as, you know, a a flood car even that's, uh, you know, say, come through one of the hurricanes. Um, So you want to have a clear title on, on a used car. It doesn't cost a lot to uh, to get that vehicle uh, history report, and it can save you thousands in the long run. That's one of the big things. Um, and then I would probably say the the mileage is another really important thing to keep an eye on. Uh, you want a car with consistent mileage on that odometer, um, you know, year after year. If if it's been sitting for a long time. Um, Things can go wrong. Uh, I think one of the worst things for cars is for it to sit for a long time, and uh, that's what that's when things start to break down. And we're probably seeing that a lot now with folks who aren't driving as much, or at least some who might be working from home aren't driving as much as they used to when they were driving to an office. Yeah, I think uh, with with the commute now um, not, not as prevalent in America. I think the, the big thing is for drivers just to put a few miles on every so often, every few days, even, uh, if a car sits for weeks at a time, that's, uh, that's when you're going to start to see the brakes rusting up or, um, you know, other components start to fail. And with the fluids can be sitting there in the engine compartment or in the transmission, and, and they, they do need to move around, especially if you're in a cold-weather climate where it's just uh, congealing in there. It's probably not great to have it just sitting and not running for a while, and then you try to pick it up as a used car, and maybe you're going to find some issues with it down the road. What kind of issues do you think could come from a car that's been sitting for a while? Sitting for a long while uh, can affect a bunch of different uh, systems. I'm thinking just uh, specifically off 
off the top of my head, one of them would be the, the braking system. Um, brake fluid itself is hygroscopic, which means that it absorbs water, which can cause failure, and um, that's never good with the brake system. <laughs> uh, and if a car is sitting for a long time, that fluid, if it absorbs more water or moisture just from, from the, the climate around it, um, yeah, that, that can deteriorate or breaks from the inside and you'll never know it. You have also an article on uh, Bumper.com, and I'm speaking to Jason Unraw. He's an automotive writer for Bumper.com, as well as uh, other uh, automotive areas that you can see on the internet. You have an article about car inspections and how long they take, and you know so many smart people recommend them, but rarely do they happen because you as a buyer are thinking, why should I spend an extra two or $250 to have someone tell me this car is crap? Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, as a service advisor, I've had several people in the past come in with cars uh, thinking their car is in great condition, that all they need is an oil change and out the door. And uh, I, I can recall more than once how we've you know, found a, a rotten frame, for example, where the car is actually unsafe to drive, where the brakes are completely worn out or you know, several several types of uh, problems that, that I would deem the car unsafe to drive. Right. But then me as a buyer, I'm spending that money, presumably, right? At, let's say I, I'm buying a car from you. And then you say, no, the car is great. And you say, I say, well, I, I wouldn't mind having it inspected by uh, my local shop. And then I take it down there and you know, I have to pay him a couple hundred dollars. And then they tell me that, yeah, the brakes are all worn and this and that. And, and do I use that information then to go back to you and say, look, all these problems are... Uh, an issue that I, I, I really don't feel comfortable with. So uh, I want you to take that price, whatever the repair cost would be, off of the price of that you're trying to sell it to me for so I can go get them fixed? Or do you just say, uh, no thanks, you can have your car back? You know, I think it would depend on what actually is found on that inspection. There's a lot of smaller repairs, say it is brakes or, or fluids that need to be changed or you know a, a ball joint or, or something that's easily repaired. If it's something like that, yeah, you can negotiate the difference in, in price. Uh, but there are certain things like, um, say there was a previous accident that went unreported, or like I mentioned, a rusty frame or something like that. Those are great to identify before you actually invest in the vehicle, so you can walk away. And I guess the only way to find that out is uh, by getting an inspection. What you you also have an interesting article about what is the safest car color to buy? <laughs> why why would there be different safety measure or safety for uh, different car colors? You know that was an interesting article to write. Um, that one was pitched to me to write, and I had no idea this was even a concern until I started searching. Car colors don't make a lot of difference for safety, but there are statistics that show minor differences. Uh, apparently, black cars are more accident-prone than white cars. Uh, I'm guessing it's all due to visibility. Uh, and what I found a little bit surprising is that you know, unusual colors like purple and pink tend to get into accidents more often as well. And you also say that white cars get into the fewest number of crashes. And do you yeah. think that's a a symptom of the type of person that is attracted to that car color or and, and they're driving a style? Or do you think it's the actual, like you said, color that makes it maybe a little bit harder to see at different times of day and night? 
you know, there might be something to the type of person driving a, a certain color of car. That There might be something there. It's kind of hard to uh, to judge that. But I definitely think the visibility portion of it is uh, is the the main factor there. Um, yeah, even for silver and gray cars, there's a higher possibility of getting in an accident for those vehicles as well. And I think it's just because they blend into the surroundings better. It's interesting that you have, uh, as part of this article, that there are certain cars to avoid for auto theft. And I have the number one on the list, which is silver. Again, it blends in. People don't notice the car as much. It's easier to uh, fly under the radar as a thief to to steal a a silver car or, or, you know, one of the common colors. I don't think a lot of people are, are wanting to steal my car. Um, <laughs> and and I, 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 I used to drive a, a stick shift, and I, I don't think there's any, a lot of people that know how to drive a stick shift anymore. So I think that's almost uh, thief-proof. That's right. Actually, I think uh, the most recent stats that I've heard is that less than 10% of Americans know how to drive stick shift now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, as, as part of your car color story, it, I thought it was interesting. It says uh, that deers hit red cars more often. Wouldn't it be the car hitting the deer more than the deer hitting the car? You might be right. That might be uh, <laughs> that might be due for an edit. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting to see how people uh, buy different color cars and 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 their personalities. And I think that you know definitely might be part of it. You have another article here in Bumper. That talks about the difference in front-wheel drive versus rear-wheel drive. But it seems that most of the rear-wheel drive cars are muscle cars uh, with big engines mm-hmm. and a lot of torque. And, and I think they're purchased by drivers who probably know the difference and want a rear-wheel drive rather than a front-wheel drive car. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I think uh, rear-wheel drive definitely has uh, has been geared more towards performance. Um, and I think for that performance, a lot of it has to do with uh, a type of mentality for that buyer as well. Rear-wheel drive cars geared more towards uh, the traditional type of buyer, uh, someone that uh, wants a luxury car or a full-size car, uh, you know, something with higher horsepower uh, or even trucks and SUVs. You also mentioned that the dreaded hump seat can be eliminated with a front-wheel drive. And that was true with one of my first cars, which was a 1975 Cadillac Eldorado convertible. And it didn't; it had front-wheel drive. It was a beast of a car, and it was no hump. And so it was just uh, straight on the floorboard. It was just straight across, seat, the whole thing. It was actually pretty nice, uh, and it it drove pretty well when, it, when the car actually worked. So that is one of the uh, benefits, I guess, of the front-wheel drive. Absolutely. Uh, I recall actually as a kid, uh, my dad had a pickup truck and uh, it wasn't a club or a crew cab like we have now. It was a standard cab and uh, there were four of us kids. My spot was sitting on the hump. Obviously, that means without a seatbelt. Uh, and uh, I don't think that would be advised in today's uh, today's market. No, and and but one of the advantages because I had a rear wheel drive uh, 1975 Plymouth Elder or uh, Plymouth uh, Fury that was my actually first car, but it was a rear wheel drive and it uh, had some pretty good pickup. And so I would I'd love to get a, a in uh, like an uphill a little incline and a right turn and that's when you can punch it. And you start skidding, right? And you start just peeling out that back tire, so it starts smoking. Uh, that was <laughs> that's yeah. the, I guess, a great advantage of a rear-wheel drive car. 
yeah, I had the same fun with uh, the second car that I owned. It was a 1980 Mazda RX-7 with a rotary engine in it. And same thing, you take a, a little corner and mash on the gas and slide out the back end. <laughs> Those were the good old days, right? Absolutely. The, the, the old fear, especially for women, uh, when they go to a, a dealership for a new car, is that the dealer would try to add all kinds of stuff to the deal that could or could not be maybe necessary. You write about, in one of your articles here on Bumper.com, you write about ceramic coating. What is a ceramic coating, and, and is it worth the money? Great question. Uh, so ceramic coating, you'll, you probably have um, less people suggesting it at the dealership in the business office when you're financing than, uh, than you would have people advertising for you to get it after the fact. Uh, but ceramic coating is actually a microscopic level coating uh, that's applied to your car, almost like you would wax the car. Uh, but uh, because of its uh, polymers and, and the compounds, it's much more resistant to, uh, to scratching and the water really does beat off of it. It's, it. Like that brake fluid that I mentioned earlier called hygroscopic, um, it basically... Uh, resists water, it pushes it away, and it rolls right off. And so does it go on the, the paint side of the car, the upper part of the car, or does it go on the underneath? Yeah, it goes on the paint. Uh, ceramic coating goes on the paint. Um, yeah, the underneath, that would be the undercoating. That's something that you'd get at the uh, business office um, or, or financing office. That's where they would suggest uh, protecting the car from elements, you know, say uh, if you're in... Um, areas that use lots of salt or uh, or sand on the roads that would help protect the underneath from from corrosion. Like Manitoba, Canada, where you are right now. Absolutely, yeah, exactly, and and across the border to uh, to my east here, Ontario. That's uh, even worse for corrosion. Is that something though that you would recommend both the undercoating and this ceramic coating uh, if somebody was going to get either a new car or maybe even a used car and then have it done uh, after the fact? Personally, I think ceramic coating is a fantastic investment for someone who really wants to take care of their car. Um, the ceramic coating is, as I mentioned, it's an investment. It does cost quite a bit more than just waxing your car, uh, but it's long lasting. It, probably once a year, maybe, uh, you know, maybe even fewer applications than that. Uh, and that does a great job of protecting your car. Um, for undercoating, I think there's things to weigh for undercoating as well. Um, how long you're going to keep the car is an important factor. Um, if you're only planning on keeping it for a short time, is it really worth undercoating it? Uh, if you're not going to get into those you know, later years where the corrosion is going to happen, um, but it's also considered an investment. Is, is a future buyer going to pay more for your car because you've had it undercoated or not? Uh, personally, I, am, I would recommend doing the undercoating, but it is a personal choice for uh, for buyer. And, and as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about my car and I'm thinking about a lot of the new EVs that are coming out. Is that when I saw my car one time on a on a lift, it's basically all battery underneath, and I wonder how an undercoating is different on a electric car than it is on a traditional, um, you know, gasoline powered car because because the underneaths are completely different from one to the one to the other. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'm not too familiar with how the design would work with undercoating, um, you know, with the battery modules and. 
uh, and all of the electronic equipment, if that would uh, make a difference or uh, or how that would work. That's a great question I'd to take a look into. See, there you go. I'm, I'm already giving you new articles to work on. Exactly. <laughs> like, like you need more work, right? I'm, I'm speaking to Jason Unraw, he's an automotive writer for Bumper.com, as well as other uh, automotive uh, uh, magazines and, and uh, websites. You, uh, out here in Colorado, every spring, we get huge hailstorms. And inevitably, they hit a car dealer, and we see soon after a hail sale where all these cars are being discounted just so they can get them off the lot. Is it worth buying a hail-damaged car at a discount and just figure that you're just going to be driving a golf ball for a while? I think hail damage is one of those um, phenomenons that uh, that maybe isn't as big a deal as some people um, might think it is. It, it can affect how a car looks, of course, you know, it looks like a golf ball with all the divots in it, but uh, the the actual effects of hail don't usually um, damage the car itself. It uh, it can still operate just like it did before, and in most cases, the hail damage can be repaired. Um, there are some great PDR technicians, painless dent removal technicians, uh, all across the country, uh, who can remove the majority of, if not all of those dents, it, it costs a little money, but, uh, but it can be done and it's probably worth the savings. And, but you can't really use your insurance money for that. So let's say you had collision or uh, comprehensive, comprehensive insurance for your car. You can't go and buy a dealership hail dented car and then go to your insurance company and say, uh, you, can you fix this for me? No, no, that uh, that would be a pre-existing condition, and any insurance company would have a serious problem with trying to make a claim on that. It does. It, it really doesn't matter, though, if I get the hail damage fixed or not. It's really just an aesthetic thing. So, if I'm going to keep the car forever, it doesn't really matter. Even if I'm going to sell the car, I could sell it to somebody else, and and they could choose to fix it or or not fix it, right? Right. The aesthetic doesn't make a, a huge difference if you if you don't mind the the look of hail damage on the car um selling it you you probably will have some challenges with because there are people who um are going to really want their car looking like it doesn't have hail damage um so you you might have to lower your price significantly in order to sell a car with hail damage um buying the car with hail damage though is another story altogether uh the the effect on a car's value once it has an insurance claim uh, with hail damage on it, that can affect the, the resale value significantly. Uh, and, and again, that's uh, for bumper, one of the reasons that you want to get uh, vehicle history report. But there's no, it, you don't really have to go get the car fixed, right? You, I mean, you just keep driving around that car and, and get a couple thousand dollars and then basically just, I guess you could never claim hail damage or other kind of damage again. Yeah, I mean, there's probably um, situations where you could add collision insurance still to the car, but you wouldn't be able to claim hail damage anymore, I, I, I wouldn't suspect. Well, what about a wrap? You have another article on uh, Bumper.com about a, uh, a wrap, because I, I do have some old dings and, and scratches on my car, uh, mostly from my kids uh, opening up the door <laughs> from my wife's car into mine, even in the garage. Uh, would that be a decent option to go just to get one of those wraps instead of painting the whole car? Instead of painting a car, yes, uh, you could definitely do a wrap instead of painting a car. Um, that would 
that'd be an excellent option. And you can change the car color too if you want. You could change it every three, six months, however often you want to do with a wrap, as long as you're willing to take it off and put a new one on. Uh, it would not cover, however, those dents. It would uh, probably accentuate any dents in the door, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, <laughs> but uh, what about cost? Is it cost-effective? Is it going to be the same as, as painting or, or long-lasting? Usually, uh, a wrap is going to be uh, less expensive and less time-consuming than getting a paint job. Um, I think anyone who's had a quality paint job done uh, knows that their car is in the shop for a couple of weeks, likely, and uh, it's thousands upon thousands of dollars. Uh, I'm um, familiar with uh, someone locally here that has a, a really nice classic car, for an example here, and he had a paint job done for $25,000, and it wasn't the most expensive paint job he could have gotten. Um, a car wrap, on the other hand, he probably could have had applied in, say, two days, and at a cost of maybe $2,000 less. Or two thousand dollars or less. Sorry about that. Wow, no, that's that's huge. That's <laughs> that is definitely a huge uh, price difference. You, you have an article on uh, again on bumper.com about how much commissions do car salesmen make? Uh, I you were a service advisor, so you were working over the service department. But I'm sure you hear stories, and and you were talking to the salespeople. So how much do they make? And and is it really one of those I have to hustle to go earn some money? Well, I actually did spend 18 months selling cars, so uh, I've got some first-hand knowledge of, of commission as well. <laughs> uh, it is a, probably a different climate now as, uh, as a car sales per- person as it was when I was selling cars, but uh, commission at that point uh, was paid you know, per vehicle, uh, and there were bonuses if you achieved certain levels. Um, contrary to popular belief, Salespeople do not get paid on the full sale, uh, full retail price of a car. It's just on the profit that the dealership makes. So when you're buying a car for $20,000 or $30,000, the car salesperson is not walking away with a $5,000 check. It's usually a couple hundred dollars. Wow. So it really does come down to that deal where you are trying to get, let's say, as a, as a vehicle buyer, I'm trying to get the best deal so I don't have to pay very much. But the salesperson that I'm sitting across from is trying to make it as expensive as possible so there is more of a profit gap, and that's how they're going to get paid. Exactly, yeah. That's, uh, that's how the, the old um, or the standard way of, of car sales is. Um, what you'll also find these days is a lot of dealerships have been moving towards a, uh, a fixed price or um, a non-commissioned sales model. Uh, and that really does benefit the clients more than it does the salesperson. Um, just because you have a set price, uh, there's no, no haggling necessary. You're, you're getting a good deal, uh, typically. Um, but typically before the, the current shortage situation. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's no, no pressure from the salesperson to try to achieve a certain margin. Is it still a job that is desirable to some? Is it, is it fun to be a car salesman? You know, it, it's, it's a fantastic living if you enjoy the highs of making a deal. Uh, if you enjoy the, the service aspect of, of working with customers, um, it, it's a great living to, to be in for sure. Uh, I worked with a lot of guys that I uh, still stay in contact with, and uh, 
yeah, they're still in car sales and, and love every minute of it. But, but you know, you get that uh, kind of a creepiness factor to some salespeople. And I, I think that... The creepy car salesman. Right, exactly. Um, but that's still out there as well. Yeah, there's always going to be those, uh, those people that are trying to, um, to make a few extra bucks, you know, earn more than they're supposed to, or, uh, or sell a car that, um, you know, maybe has some flaws that they aren't disclosing. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be people like that uh, as long as there's cars to sell. And, uh, yeah, it, it really does come down to buyers doing their diligence uh, doing their due diligence to uh, to make sure they're not being taken for a ride. Um, no matter how much the industry moves forward in, in a customer-centric way, there's going to be uh, a reason for customers to um, take care of themselves. I think the Meekum people have really made classic car auctions cool because they broadcast them on television. They're showing these really awesome cars. Some of the prices are ridiculous. And uh, it, it can be a an interesting way to go. However, not a lot of people can go to Indianapolis or Phoenix or wherever to, to see those big, that major big auction. But there are local auctions in usually in people's hometowns, and they are a way for I think people to show up and and go buy a car at a pretty reasonable price. How, how do you go about uh, showing up and, and going to an auction? Can anybody show up at an auction and just go buy a car? Or do you have to have a certain license to do that? Yeah, you're right. There's, uh, there's some exciting auctions out there. Uh, Barrett Jackson, uh, Meekum, they, they both have really uh, fantastic um, production value as well. And I have a client, uh, Velocity Restorations, that uh, sold a Ford Bronco at, at auction there. But yeah, it isn't going to be the uh, everyday person that uh, attends that auction. It's going to be, you know, high rollers. Now, if you're looking at um, buying a vehicle at auction, trying to get a great deal, yeah, there's lots of local options, um, auction houses that uh, that do that. Uh, but some of those auctions are dealer only, and some are open to the public. So uh, you really need to know which auctions are which uh, before you attend. If you uh, don't have a dealer's license, um, there's a good chance you're not making it into even the stands to watch the uh, the dealer auctions happening. And that's a way for some of the dealers to get used cars. They go to these dealer auctions and then they can pick up the cars that you will then eventually buy, albeit at uh, probably a markup that they paid from when they bought it at the auction. Right, yeah. The dealers, in a lot of cases, will buy uh, a majority of their used car inventory from auction. Uh, and it's a great way for them to buy the the cars that their customers are looking for and the ones that they know can be profitable. Uh, and uh, when they bring it back to the dealership, you're paying a higher price than they pay, obviously, because dealers are there to to make money and, and you know pay their employees and things like that, but also because they put costs into it. Uh, they recondition it. They completely detail it. And uh, they back it as well. That's one of the great things with dealerships is, uh, over a private sale, you have some assurances when you buy from a dealership. If something goes wrong, you go back to them, and uh, they're likely to help you out rather than being on your own with a car that uh, might have some problems. I'm speaking with Jason Unrise, uh, automotive writer for Bumper.com, as well as other online uh, publications. And we're talking about uh, you know used cars and buying cars at auction right now. It, one story that I was researching recently 
It was about driving the legality uh, of driving a right-hand drive vehicle. And it led me down this path that there are government auctions uh, for vehicles, including old postal vehicles that you could buy. So maybe that's a route you could go to is get old government cars. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, most governments turn their fleets over uh, every so often, and it'll depend on, on the department and how many miles they put on and things like that. But yeah, governments will uh, definitely auction off their inventory um, every so often. It's a great way to get a good deal. Uh, what you'll typically find with the government vehicles is that they're um, probably run a little bit uh, harder than your typical car uh, and uh, often have less options in them. But if you're okay with that, uh, there's, there's going to be a good buy. Will I save money if I go to an auction compared to... Um... You know, buying it from somebody on uh, Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or uh, or even eBay. Well, that uh, that depends on how savvy of a buyer you are. Uh, you can save money by buying an auction vehicle, uh, but you can also find a great deal buying used. Uh, it uh, from from a private sale. It, it really does depend on how much research you do and um, and what you're willing to do in order to buy that car. With an auction, you need to be an aggressive buyer and uh, you know know your limits. Uh, you can't get caught up in the emotions. Sometimes, with uh, buying privately, you have a little bit better control over uh, over some of those factors. Yeah, you see that a whole emotion uh, play out in those Mecham Autos <laughs> auctions. They are uh, they can be quite addicting, and you have somebody in your face saying, "Do you want to bid? Do you want to bid? Do you want to bid?" And it's <laughs> it, there's just not not everybody's cup of tea. That's so true. That's so true. Jason, thank you so much for uh, for doing this and for being here and uh, and putting up with my questions and um, and I appreciate your thank time. You, thank you for your time. Again, if you want to read any of those articles in Bumper.com by Jason, I have the link to all of his stories in the description of this show. Just click there and you'll see it. Uh, next week, I'm scheduled to talk to um, a couple of interesting people from General Motors. One about their super cruise feature and being expanding on more roads. The other one, which I thought was really interesting, and how they help train first responders to deal with EVs, electric vehicles, if they're in a crash or other issues that come up with them because it's new dealing with those for a lot of first responders, especially in smaller departments that don't have as much training as, as some of the bigger departments. So GM does does this uh, work, and I thought it was pretty interesting. So I'm going to talk to them here in the next couple of days and, and bring you that uh, should be brought to you uh, at next episode. Anyway, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.